0: You're listening to another episode of A Lady and Some Dudes podcast.
1: Welcome to another episode to A Lady and Some Dude. At this time, we're gonna share a grateful moment. My grateful moment is just thanking God for allowing us to see a new America. I pray. And my kids live live to see this moment.
2: Hello, everyone. My name is Dion. I am the lady um, of the podcast. And my grateful moment is being able to go back in the courtroom this week. Um, This was the first time in three months that I have been at work. The reason why I'm grateful for that, because I stand in a position where I have power to make a positive impact and to do the right thing for our community so that's my grateful
3: moment hi everyone this is e uh my grateful moment is the fact that to a certain extent uh within my church community we're moving to back to a semblance of normalcy uh, we've been going to doing all um uh, going from online church to doing uh driving services and we've been able to maintain social distancing i think people are getting more and more comfortable so I'm grateful that um, we've been able to do that, but I'm also grateful to see the protests going on um, that are raising their voice for a just and equitable cause.
4: What's going on everybody. This is Cal. Um, my grateful moment this week would be um, having a conversation with one of my buddies from high school, a white gentleman. Um, being able to have a productive conversation about uh, viewpoint from somebody from the inner city from black communities uh, on views of the flag and views um, about police brutality. I think it was very productive and it was good to have a dialogue between him and a couple of his friends and I think it was productive so I'm thankful for that.
1: Today our uh, ladies some dudes we want to thank John Salmond to come by and visit with us and to chat with us for a little bit. So John, first question is tell us a little bit about yourself to the audience.
0: Oh, well, I'm a um, husband and father of four. I um, have three boys, one girl, um, all under 12. Um, so it's a, uh, it's a busy house, uh, a loud house, which is, which is great. Uh, you get a annoying sometimes but you know it's it's definitely great um the hair you know cheerful voices i uh, played in the nba for 13 years i retired in 2015 um i now uh own a restaurant um that is uh temporarily closed due to the whole covid-19 thing um um. that's about it that's I mean that's all I am
4: alright I'm gonna jump in John so you played 13 years in the league my question was two questions in one if you can have a favorite team that you played on could you tell me that and also what was your favorite city that you lived in during your time in the NBA
0: favorite team depends on uh what you mean by favorite so as far as basketball, Chicago Chicago Bulls is my favorite team. As far as basketball, um, even though I was playing well in Sacramento, I didn't get the notoriety till I got to to the Bulls. Um, but from just a personal standpoint, as far as off the court things, it was uh, Sacramento. Um, Sacramento was great. Um, for my wife and I like, uh, my wife and I got married the summer before um, I signed with, with Sacramento um, and we was in Philly for you know, four years uh, and it was just it was just crazy uh, so my wife and I was able to go way across country to um, a little city called Sacramento where it's really nothing to do Um, and we was able to go out there and leave away cross country and leave everything behind that was, you know, that was dogging us here in Philly. Um, so we was able to grow together. We had our first child in Sacramento. Um, we met a lot of good people in Sacramento that we're still friends with, uh, today. Um, uh, so it was just, it was just good for us, um, for a lot of personal reasons. Um, my favorite city to play in is was well, Toronto. Toronto was is probably one of the best kept secrets as far as a city. Um, it's very diverse. Uh, the people are very nice. You know, Canadians are known for being nice. So it's definitely true. Uh, the people were very nice. Um, so many different cultures. Uh, everybody was together on um, the food, so many different types of food. And, the Diversity in the food was great. Um, only thing was it's cold. It's cold in Toronto, and when I was there, they were saying we had like they had the worst winter in like twenty five years. So <laughs> freezing. I mean, in in, in, uh, in Toronto. So, but outside of that, Toronto is, is a great city.
2: And so, John, um, I want to backtrack a little and just get some insight before you got to the NBA. Um, You chose to go to Miami, but we are all aware that you had good offers from a lot of top schools. Um, Tell us a little bit about what went into your thought process in choosing Miami.
0: Uh, At the time, I didn't really realize it, but when I look back, it was definitely that's just where God wanted me to wanted me to go because honestly, Miami was like wasn't top on my list. Um, originally, I was on go to Seton Hall, but Seton Hall is my my best friend growing up. My best friend uh, who I actually we went to high school with, who I went to high school with. He uh, he went to. Uh, Senior Hall a year before so everybody just assumed I was on go and I just assumed I was on go because uh, we lived together and it just seemed like a package deal uh, but Senior Hall kind of did some shady stuff at the last minute um, so I ended up not going there and that was a blessing because I really honestly I really didn't even want to go it was just one of those things where everybody assumed I was on go so better at the time. And I was just going to follow suit because that's where everybody assumed I was going to go. Um, but they did some shady stuff. So that gave me the opportunity to start to really, um, focus on other schools. Um, so once all the other schools realized that I wasn't going to senior hall, like you said, I started getting a lot of other big offers, um, like Indiana, Kansas, um, Michigan. Um, and Connecticut. Um, at the time, Connecticut was a school that sent, uh, forward to the NBA every single year. Uh, every single year, a forward was coming out of Connecticut going to the NBA. So I was a forward at the time. So that's where I wanted to go. Cause you know, my goal was to make it to the NBA. So, um, I took my visit and I ended up not liking it at Connecticut. Um, just because I feel like I wanted to enjoy college outside of basketball. And I just didn't see that happening at Connecticut. Um, my favorite school was Michigan. Growing up, I was a bit Fat Five fan. Um, I wore the number five in college because of Jalen Rose. Um, so when they started recruiting me, I almost signed without taking a visit because um, I was so hyped that they was recruiting me because, you know, that was my favorite school. But the, the, the weekend I was supposed to uh, take my visit to Michigan, uh, the coach called me and said, you know, we have having a, a snowstorm this week. Uh, why don't you, you know, wait a week and come next week to see if everything's cleared up uh, so you're not here in the middle of that storm? So I said, all right. Uh, somehow Miami found out who wasn't really – it was on my list, but wasn't really on my radar. And the coach was like, yeah, I heard you wasn't going to uh, Michigan this week. I mean, you might as well come down to Miami and take a visit. It's no no snowstorms down here. So I ended up going to Miami and never made it to Michigan. (laughs) Kind of signed – not – well, verbally committed at the airport. (laughs) my <laughs> way back home so um and it, that was all she wrote from there
3: okay that's uh, that's um interesting perspective to think about all the facts that go into making decision about where you're going to go play right uh so talk to me a little bit about talk to me a little bit about the draft process you you finished Miami you you did everything you need to do you prove yourself as a player and I I remember when you got drafted uh and got traded to the Sixers uh but talk to me a little bit about about what that experience was when you no longer have the decision where you go but now you're being decided your destiny is being decided for you
0: yeah it was uh a little nerve-wracking um just because I was like one of those so I wasn't it I was I was I was pretty sure I was going to get drafted, um, but I was a borderline. I can go anywhere from lottery to the second round. So a lot of people had me all over the board. Um, one of the high I remember on on draft day, uh, I went to the barber shop and they had the paper and they had me as going as high as eight. Um, so I didn't really know where I was going to – where I was going to fit in because it was also people saying uh, I was a second-rounder. So I, I just – I didn't really know. Um, after after um, the season was over, you know, you go to, like, pre-draft camps um, where, you know, you kind of prove yourself against a lot of the top players um, in, in, the, in the country. Uh, so I went to two different camps uh, after the season was over. Um, you go through, uh, uh, an interview process with agents. So you got to find an agent. Um, that was a little nerve wracking cause it was, you know, it's hard to just, you know, trust a stranger with your career. Uh, you don't know if they have your best interests at heart or they just, you know, trying to get paid. Um, so you have to go to that process. Uh, And then you go through individual, then you go through workouts with the different teams. Um, You work out with anywhere from yourself and just yourself to about four people um, with different teams. So I worked out for 12 different teams um, just trying to, you know, uh, prove myself to these teams. Um, I actually had a a workout. I, I worked out with the Hawks on draft day. Um, so that morning I had to work out with the Hawks. Um, I worked out against, it was just me and a, and a guy named, uh, Smush Parker. Um, it was just us two working out. We pretty much did some drills. We played one-on-one. Um, that was about it. And then I flew home, went to the barbershop, um, invited some of my first, close friends over, um, watched the draft that night. Um, and I, I got drafted 26. So, like I said, I worked out for 12 different teams, and a lot of the teams that I worked out with uh made their picks already. So, I'm like, wow, like all these teams that you know said that they they might draft me, they all made their picks. So I'm like, wow. I don't know what I'm gonna do now. I, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna go in the second round. And the, the difference between the first round and the second round is the first round is a guaranteed contract, and the second round you still have to make the team. So you know everybody want to go to first round, and and my uh, agent told me a couple of days ago, like yeah, the Sixers um, is a high chance that the Sixers going to draft is, is going to draft you, but the Sixers already made a pick earlier in, in the draft. So I'm like, wow, like what's going on? So comes to find out that pick that the decisions made was actually a pick for, for, uh, for golden state. Uh, Cause they made a trade and they also made a trade with San Antonio. So San Antonio actually drafted me um, number 26, but it was actually for the sisters. So, when I got drafted by San Antonio, I was happy because I went. I got drafted. I went in the first round, but I didn't even work out for San Antonio, so it was kind of a surprise. And then a little while later, you know, the Sixers they called me and they told me they made the trade, and it was like surreal. It was like it was like almost a dream come true because you know, growing up from Philly, I always wanted to play for the Sixers. Barkley was like one of my favorite players growing
1: up, so it was crazy, and it was. Super convenient just to be home. Wow. So my question is: After you was drafted by the Seventy Sixers, and you said that was one of your favorite teams, so it seems like that was the team you was that the team you want really want to be drafted to, to and that your favorite team? Uh, I wanted to be drafted to. I wanted to be drafted to Atlanta, okay. uh, because
0: uh, my last few years in college I played point guard, and Atlanta didn't have a point guard at the time. Uh, so I felt like I could come right to Atlanta and uh, and start at the point. Um, but uh, one of those days looking back, I'm glad that didn't
4: happen either. Yeah, a lot of people don't know about your spiritual side. I mean, some do, but many probably listening don't. Um, I know you personally, so I know you're a Christian. So the question is, how is, it, how is life um, as a Christian Day to day in the NBA, give can you give us a little insight on that.
0: Um, it could be it could be tempting, because um, that lifestyle is very um, the NBA lifestyle is typically not a Christian lifestyle. Uh, it's the very opposite. Um, from just um. Everything that's involved um, from, you know, uh, girls to partying to whatever you want, you got access to. Um, So for me, um, early on, being from Philly, um, knowing everything about Philly, knowing where to go, knowing all the different clubs, knowing everything. About Philly, um, I was highly tempted, and early on, I came, I came, I fell to those temptations. Um, because, to be honest, those things—I mean, it's fun. Like, it's a fun lifestyle. Um, and at a twenty-two, as a twenty-two-year-old, even though I was a Christian, I, um, I wanted to live that lifestyle. Um, uh, but it took me a, about, took me about two years to realize, like, I'm tripping. Like, I gotta, like, I'm, I'm a Christian first, uh before all the money, before all the temptation for all that stuff. And just, the uh, the guilt, I couldn't, I couldn't deal with it. And I know that guilt was coming from Satan, but it was, like, it, I, I couldn't, I just, I couldn't, I couldn't deal with it. Um, so I ended all that and I committed to my faith. I committed to Christ. Um, and I just stopped putting myself in those positions. Um, I wouldn't go out anymore. Uh, I wouldn't hang with certain people, um, unless it was, you know, something simple like going, going to eat or something like that. Um, and I just kind of, you know, I just stop putting myself in those situations because i knew i couldn't handle it so from there on i was uh i was pretty much good It it became a lot easier just not just not putting myself in those situations
2: that's that's great um keep in line with this idea of christianity um the bible says that a prophet has no honor in his own home can you tell us what your experience was playing for the hometown
0: team, the 76ers? You know, um, I lived that 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 scripture when I was a uh, and I kept that close to my heart because that's exactly what it was. It was it was a tough four years. I can't even like people and the 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 thing about it, you know I got drafted, I was home playing for you know my hometown team like I said it's a dream come true and that's all people saw like all people saw was that like you in the NBA playing for the Sixers making all this money like how can you be uh down like how can you be depressed like what, like what's going on like and can it was probably the worst four years of my life um it was it was a tough, tough four years. Um, I wasn't playing great. I wasn't playing a lot. And then when I was playing, I wasn't playing great. I got killed by the media. I got killed by fans. I got booed by fans. Um, and, you know, all my family is here. Um, so people were talking crazy to my family. Um it, it was just a bad, bad... It was just a, a crazy situation. Um, but one thing it did, one thing got used in that situation, it, it grew me up quick. Um, I got drafted at 22, but I still was, wasn't a man yet. Um, and coming out of that, like I, I was a man coming out of that because I had to grow up fast. Um, that's what allowed me to uh get married be a, become a husband um it allowed me to to become a father um, it allowed me to become a leader um on other teams after I left Philadelphia um so I kind of got baptized in the fire cuz it was it was a it was a crazy time in Philly so i look back and as much as i wouldn't want to go through that that um that situation again i wouldn't take it back because it helped me become who I am today. Um, so I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't take it back. Nothing.
3: I think you really, thinking about what you're, you're saying, thinking about the previous question, you came to Philly, in, I think, in a difficult time, right? Because uh, you got drafted in 2002, which comes right after uh, the Sixers uh, have been in the finals. Um, and they had drafted Speedy Claxton, uh, I think, in 01. Uh, he didn't play that year. And so uh, you come into a tough situation in which the roster, they had to shed a lot of players that were on the championship roster because they had mortgage contracts to get to Kimmy Mutombo win there. Uh, but what was it like, you know, when you think about basketball play, you think, well, you just play basketball, but obviously there are systems and things of that nature. Stepping into that environment after being on a founders run, coming from being the man uh, and Miami come from me, the man, you know, in your high school years, what's the transition like from being the man, being the go-to to playing with Allen Iverson and then becoming more of a role player as opposed to the man?
0: Um, so that was a transition as well. Um, cause this starts out like, like I said, my last two years in college, I played, I played point guard. So my, my junior, I started off pretty much all four years. I, my freshman year, um, I start. I start starting maybe halfway through the through the through the year, uh, my freshman year, and I was a starter ever since. And my first two years, I played small forward. Um, my junior year, I started at the two guard, as the shooting guard, and then I was a backup point guard. So I start at the two, and when I point guard, when I, I was the point guard, and then my senior year, I was the starting point guard. So, I got drafted as a point guard. Uh, I got drafted to play next to Irison as a point. They wanted him off the ball. They wanted him to play to two. But they also wanted my height so I can guard to two, and he can guard to the, 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 uh, the point guard. So, I will play point on offense and, and guard to the two on defense. But like I said, I was only a full-time point guard for one year, even though – that was my favorite position and I felt like if I was able to uh, really uh, hone that position as an NBA player, that would have been my, my best position. And even though I played 13 years, I think I felt like I would have been able to play even longer at, at the point. So coming in, I was still learning that position um, and... and the coach I had was Larry Brown, and Larry Brown don't like rookies. He loved rookies, but he don't like playing rookies. Like he loved rookies because he loved he loved coaching. He loved coaching, and he can coach rookies. And he coached me up crazy every day in practice. Like, he was on me. He, he was on me every day. Um, but because I was versatile, I could play the one, two, and three. If Things wasn't working out for me at the two. They would just put me at, I mean, at the one, at the point guard, they just put me at the two and the three because I could play the two and the three, even though I felt like my fit, my best position would have been the one. So I'm jockeying back and forth between the one, two, and, and, one, two and the three. Um, trying to learn the NBA system. Um, things not, I'm not playing that much. And then when I do play, I'm not playing well. So, I got to deal with that. And on top of that, every single year I was in Philly, <clears throat> I had a new coach. So after my first year, Larry Brown left. And then uh, we had uh, Randy Ayers come in the next year. Then he got fired in the middle of the year. Um, so we had another coach that, that year. And then he was, since he was an interim coach, the second coach after Randy Ayers, they brought in. A different coach my third year he lasted a year my fourth year in philly they fired that coach and brought in mo cheeks um uh, so every year i'm trying to prove myself to a new coach i'm trying to learn three positions and i'm trying to get planes so it, it was just it was just it was just it was just crazy it was just it was just a crazy crazy situation so it was a lot I had to deal with on top of the media, on top of the fans, on top of my family, like, asking me for tickets, asking me for money, expecting everything in the world. It, it, was, just, it was just a crazy situation. So it, it was a lot to adjust to in, in those four years.
3: Sounds like you were playing for the Knicks. <laughs> That's a bad jab.
2: <laughs> yes. Evan, and I will get
1: you back today for it. <laughs> John, I want to ask you a quick question um, as we're going to go. Have you watched the last dance? And I know you did play against Jordan, too, during his latter years. So to be a little controversial, so you've seen Iverson. I know you watched Jordan play the last year, uh, Jordan, and you did play LeBron. Who is your who you think is your GOAT? Who's the GOAT? That's my question. Who is the GOAT?
0: You're definitely the GOAT. Who? Jordan.
1: Jordan the goat.
0: Why? <laughs> um, just because uh LeBron had uh he had uh things that happened to him in his career that kind of for me, um he it's it's hard for him to, to come back from to to take the GOAT status. Um, like the meltdown against the Mavericks, um, like he had a lot of situations like that that Jordan did have. Like Jordan was the man from the gate. Like this is my NBA, this is my team, this is my NBA, and I'm taking it by storm. Like I'm not having, I'm not having any meltdown. Like at the end of the game, you can give me the ball. And it's a good chance we're gonna win. And it took LeBron a long time, even though LeBron came in uh, younger. Like, he came straight out of high school. It took LeBron a long time to to get over that. Um, So, and, you know, Jordan, he stayed with the Bulls, and he built the Bulls team up. He didn't have to go to Miami and go there with two different uh, uh, Hall of Famers. He did it on his team. Um, And you can say, you know, Jerry Krause was a better GM. Than what LeBron had in Cleveland, but I mean, people wanted to play with Jordan. People at the time it, when when my when LeBron was in Miami, people didn't want to play with him, so they didn't want to come to Cleveland. Um, so I don't know. Things like that, just I can't. And you know, growing up and every, everybody want to be like Mike Era and all that. It's just it's hard for me to say LeBron is better is to go over over George. Even though LeBron probably is definitely more gifted. Um talent he's more talented, but uh and he, he could probably do more things on the court. But uh when
4: it's all said and done, I gotta go with Mike. Yeah, that's great that's the best answer I heard you do in years, brother. Appreciate that. <laughs> yeah, so before we go, this is the last question, but I wanted to, uh just Just definitely say thanks, man. Appreciate that, man. Give you your flowers while you're here. I appreciate everything that you've done for me as a person. Uh, Helped my game out as a player, too, man. So I just want to tell you that. But the last question I have um, for you is how do you feel about NBA players now? Um, Not just NBA players. We can say NBA players and also players from other sports Um, using their their voice now. Uh, do you feel like they do it enough, or they don't do it do it enough? And uh, you know, what's your perspective on the players and the activism?
0: Oh, I feel like it's great. Um, I feel like uh, players need to step up. Um, at the same time, I don't. I don't want. Um, at the same time, I don't want. I don't want players stepping up just because they think it's the right thing to do. Um, if you don't have the right things to say, um, I would rather you back one of our leaders um, than if you don't know, the, if you don't have the right words to say, then you come out and speak and you sound crazy. Um, yes. So I, I think we definitely, I think uh, it is a place for athletes to step up. Um, I think we need it. Um, but just, I just want athletes to make sure that they know what they're speaking on, and not just speaking just to speak, just to you know, so they
4: look good or anything like that. Got you. A lot of them feel kind of pressured into it. A lot of times, I see what you're saying. A lot of times, they speak, they speak without being knowledgeable of situations, and they you know, they speak a lot of times. They gotta pull back on the things that they said before now. Um, you being, you know, we we both from Philly. Um, any thoughts on Kobe and what did Kobe mean uh, to you as a player? And is I, I think I think you all played you played against Kobe, right?
0: Yeah, yeah, since high school.
4: Yeah, in high school, right?
0: Um, the situation is still unbelievable. It's still, I still, it's still hard to believe that you know he passed like that. Uh, he passed in that fashion like, it's still you unbelievable uh, i mean he was i mean he's always been you know he's always been a great player like the things you see him doing in the NBA, you know that's what he was doing to us in high school um, i mean he was <laughs> great from the first um i saw him play to the last day i saw him play. Um, and you know the thing about Kobe, you know, you know, Kelly, you you know here in Philly, you know how you know it's a it's a very it's very much a um you know uh, crabs in a barrel type uh, mindset here. You know he everybody was hating on him. You know, I was I remember I was one of them. I was like you know he's great and all that, but. He's not NBA like when he was going straight to the NBA. I was like, he's not NBA ready. Like he, he, he's great, but he not. Mm-hmm. He proved all of us wrong. Um, he was, uh, he was a great player, um, and it's just sad to see him pass tragically like that. I mean, it was man, that was that was awful. Yeah.
1: So John. Anything else you want to highlight and what you've been up to?
0: Uh, Well, I have a restaurant in Cherry Hill Mall. uh, It's called Stone Fire Pizza. Um, We are uh, connected to uh, Bahama Breeze, um, right next to uh, Season 52. Uh, We temporarily close right now, but um, Jersey is um, starting on June 15th. They're starting to loosen up some restrictions, so... I'm in the process of starting to you know open back up. So uh that's pretty much all I've been up to, just you know, dealing with that.
2: All right,
1: cool. Cool. So we wanna thank you. Um, you're welcome to stay. I stay. Cool, great. <laughs> all right. So let's go on to our next transition, a uh, ladies, some dudes. Let's talk about the NBA. The NBA is back, and we know the new format, they only invited twenty-two teams. Sadly, the Knicks is not one of them. So, first question I'm going to go to is Calvin. And um, I'm going to ask you, Calvin, tell me about the format. And what do you agree or disagree? So, yeah. So,
4: the format, I think think it was um, 13 teams from the West Coast, nine teams from the East Coast. Um, I thought the format was, was pretty good because um, the teams that actually had a chance to be in, be in the playoffs on the West Coast team on the West Coast side still have a chance uh, to make it. So I think that was good. I think that was fair, and I think that was what kind of Damian Lillard was trying to lead to. So I, I agree with the format as far as that. Um, another thing is I like it because a lot of players, especially the Sixers players, uh, they were, had a chance to recover. Um, ben Simmons, so we need, we definitely would need him going into this playoff push. So you know as far as the format though I think it was I think they got it right this time.
1: John, how about you? What are you thinking? Uh, I think it was cool. Uh,
0: I was all, I was for just bringing all the teams back um, and playing enough games where every team can fulfill the TV contracts. Um, so, I think you have to you have to play seventy games um at least seventy games to fulfill your t v contract so um i was uh I wanted all the teams to come back just so they can fulfill those little t v contracts because that's there's more money for the players um but the way they did it i mean they was trying to limit as you know how many people that is actually on on the the, the campus. So I understand why they did the twenty-two teams. Um,
1: the play-in game was cool.
0: I think. I mean, under the
1: circumstances, I think they did a a good job. Dion, what are you thinking?
2: Um, I I think the format is fine. Um, I like that thirteen teams came out of the West. As you guys know, that was one of the biggest things that. You know, I was harping on on this show about fairness. If the NBA decided to go back into the playoffs, um, so I think the format is fine. I created a format in my mind that I thought would have been a little more effective, um, but ultimately it accomplishes, you know, what the NBA wanted to accomplish. But my format was to have the top 24 teams in the NBA come back. So leaving off the last six teams, um, disregard conferences, right? So we're not talking about Eastern, Western. We're talking about one through 24 from the top. The top eight seeded teams would have a bye for the first series. And the remaining 16 teams would play against each other in like a five game format right then the winners from the eight teams that win the series they would then play the top eight seeded teams that were on by and then the NBA can follow a normal playoff format with the best of seven um playoff games so That was what I worked out in my head. I think it would have worked perfectly. I think that it would have given the same exact feel to what we know the NBA playoffs are. Um, But like I said, I'm okay with the format they created. Like I'm not at the table um, planning (laughs) how games should be played, but that's where I was.
3: That's very interesting. Evan, What are you thinking? So um, it doesn't matter how the league comes back to me. I'm just ready for to watch basketball. I don't know how many of you guys know. uh, Like like John, I have four kids, and I'm tired of spending time with my family. I want to get lost in basketball, okay? (laughs) Number two, I think what's great is, as John pointed out in the interview, the NBA has distractions. I think sometimes distractions get in the way of players playing their best basketball. So I think in July, with limited distractions, we may see some of the best, most competitive basketball that we've seen in a long time in the NBA. Because for me, in the NBA, it feels like sometimes, you know this, There are sometimes when teams take a night off. There's sometimes when teams kind of like, well, whatever. Here, it's going to be good basketball. And I imagine it's almost going to be like an AU tournament where there's no real fans there. It's just a bunch of athletes there. You be, I, like, I kind of like NBA Summer League in Vegas, where all the NBA guys are there, and it's like you got to show out because it's it's the main event. Everyone's going to be there, so I mean, it's going to be like mind blowing basketball, and it's going to be a legitimate trophy for whoever wins the um, trophy, Kelvin. Legitimate trophy.
2: So Evan, <laughs> I just wanted to follow up on on that because you said you think that the players are going to come out and they're going to be, you know, playing hard in good shape. So are you telling us that Ben Simmons is going to put on a shooting clinic in the playoffs? A shooting clinic? Uh, <laughs> going, mean, going, I, <laughs> no.
3: You got me. You got me.
4: <laughs> Listen, all right, so I think it's fair for this, right? I think we should all – oh, dang, I was going to say everybody give a – Get yeah, their best reasons why the team is going to win this trophy, but John, I told, I said before, that's why Evan brought it up. I said it should be called something else besides the Larry O'Brien, Larry O'Brien Trophy this year, because I said this thing right here is kind of crazy. So um, I think though, I think the Sixers have a legitimate shot of winning this year. Um, here's my re- Hey, hey, hey! I I can still see you laughing. Here's my reason. <laughs> What'd you say? And the whole thing. Yeah, yeah. I think they got a legitimate shot. <laughs> I think they got. <laughs> and here's why. Everybody, everybody, you know, you everybody can put their two cents for your team. Except, uh, except uh, Phil and uh, Deion, cause y'all the Knicks fans. So y'all team didn't make it. No oh, so, Okay. I'm just, I'm just, I'm just putting that out there. So I think because, because. You know, because we have the young talent, and you know what, I'm gonna let somebody else go on this one first because I want to hear. it Because I, I kind of changed my mind. I think we don't play that well on the road, so I'm kind of worried about it. But if I had to say a reason why, is because we got young talent, we got youth on our side, and I think we got we got a nice bench, and I think our team can make a run, depending on how how in shape and healthy and beat is right now. So I think we got to just enough adjust just as good a chance as anybody else has at win it this year.
3: I think the Sixers have a legitimate shot. I mean, would I be surprised if they didn't win it? No. Would I be surprised if they won it? No. I, I think they have a legitimate shot. And and to to go on, on Kelvin's point, I think one for here, here's one reason. The Bucks were a team with a lot of momentum. I think the momentum stops. I think I think the Bucks are a beatable team. They're a tough team, but my thing with the Bucks is if you can take away Giannis, you can beat them because everyone else is like, you know, they're more spot-up shooters besides Chris Middleton. Um, and that's really the only competition in the East. We've owned the Celtics this year, and Miami was on a downward spiral because they didn't figure out how to integrate Andre Iguodala into that lineup. So for me, the only thing that really concerns me in the East with everyone starting from ground zero is, is the Heat. Uh, uh, will they win? who knows? I mean, you know the problem with the sixers i think I think one part of the problem with the sixers is Brett Brown, but two, I think another problem is it's and and Deion's right, it boils down a lot to benson's ability to shoot the ball and if he's if he's not a threat on the court, the only problem is the offense gets stagnant, but I think that they have a shot. I'm not claiming it like a favorite, but as six seed, I don't think seeding really matters right now. Only on the basis of there's no home court advantage. So we're just, it's, it's, it's it's mano a mano who has enough to get it done. So this has got a six seed right now? Six seed, yeah. They play Boston if they go in right now.
4: <laughs> <laughs> oh oh, ye yeah, a little fake. Oh yeah I gotta get biblical on y'all, man. Oh yeah a little faith. <laughs> I don't see why. I don't see why it could like Evan was saying, like of course I'm being biased because that's the hometown team. So I'm gonna rock with the Sixers no matter what. But when I'm looking at the East, who we have, who, who first seed is uh who? Who was the first seed in the East? Bucks. The, uh Bucks, Bucks. And then it's, uh Toronto is it Toronto next? I don't know. yeah. Toronto, then, then with the Celtics. Don't sleep on Toronto. Yeah, I was about to I just say. just want to be honest. I, if I'm not scared, seriously, I'm not scared. If I if I was the Sixers, I see my lineup. I'm not scared of none of those teams. To be honest, I'm I, I, seriously not scared. The West Coast is a little bit different. The West Coast got some beasts, some beasts over there. But as far as the East Coast, I, I don't think they should be scared. I think they can. I think they can.
0: Uh, I don't think they can beat the Lakers or the Clippers. In the, but in, in the East, I feel like they have a fair shot against, like you said, Milwaukee, Toronto, or Boston. It just comes down to mental toughness with the sisters.
2: Mm-hmm. Absolutely, and and I agree. I think I definitely think they can come out the East, but let's not act like they're still not suffering from PTSD. Um because of what Kawhi did to them last year. Like if, if they see a team like the Clippers, um yeah. I mean I, I just really want y'all to tone this down a little bit and keep things in perspective.
4: Hey. I mean the thing I, I think we Go ahead, Jeff the
0: thing about this year is um the reason why I say it's on I mean all the playoffs always come down a bit of tough. But this this particular season they had this long break, and then it's no real gear up to the playoffs. I mean, I think they don't play what eight games or something before the playoffs or something like that, mm-hmm. right? That's not a lot of games, but like, that's that's like a preseason schedule into the regular season. Then you gear up all oh, year to the playoffs. So the team that's able to adjust and stay focused throughout the because they because if you win. The championship is—you gonna be in Orlando in hotels for about three months. Um, mm-hmm. So just that alone, it's gonna take a lot of mental toughness. I don't know if they gonna be able to bring their families and all that other stuff. Um, but I mean, if I had to go on a road, stay in Orlando for you know for three months. Um, staying in a hotel, um, even though I'm sure it's going to be, you know, one of the being great hotels, still a hotel at the end of the day. Um, Corona is still going on, so you can't do much um, outside of that. Um, So I I feel like a lot of players just going to be like, I'm tired of this and don't have the mental toughness to compete at a high level every night. Mm-hmm. And so it's going to be exciting for everybody, particularly particularly those first eight games, because, you know, it's, the NBA is back. It's, it's new, but the grind of the playoffs and the intensity of the playoffs, um, and there's no fans there, so you can't feed off the energy of the fans. It's going to be, it's going to take a lot of mental toughness for whoever, you know, wins the championship. And I just, I don't, I'm not, I haven't seen anything that says the citizens have that mental toughness.
1: <laughs> so, John, who do you think? I mean, I'm not disagreeing, Toronto because Toronto are the champions and they've been together for a little while. That's all in the East, based upon what's trans, transpiring. But who do you think... Have that mental toughness.
0: Uh, I think it's going to come down to coaching, really, because you know they all human, so they all going to go go through some some type of lives. Um. So whoever have their post, whatever coach have their post on their team the most, um, probably was going to come out the the east just because all those teams are so close in talent Mm -hmm. Um, none of those teams are that much better than any of the other teams in the east besides i mean milwaukee i mean uh milwaukee's records say they are but when you just look at the roster and compare rosters you can make an argument for you know the other teams in the east but milwaukee just plays together the best right now um and so I would have to pick them as the favorite to come out, um, but I wouldn't be surprised if it was the Sixers or if it was Toronto or if it, even if it was Boston, um, because they have the
4: talent to do it. Can I can I make a bold prediction? Y'all, marking right here, bold prediction, right? Hey. <laughs> June seventh, two eleven. My prediction, because of what John said right here, I'm going to factor it in, too. Even though I want the Sixers to win, I think who the best team that's set up for this is Boston. And the reason why I say that I is agree. because as far as the coaching is concerned, that they could, you can could check that off the box. But then I think when you think of this whole AAU atmosphere, you know, I'm thinking about older teams, you know, guys being away from their family, you know, all types of situations off the court. I think Boston being a young team, I think that's going to play in good for them uh, and having excellent coach. And I think it's going to play good and good with them. I think the teams, the older teams or teams with the vets, sometimes, you know, it might be a little bit tough mentally staying in that hotel. I think the mental aspect, as a couple of people pointed out today, is going to be big in that too. So if I'm my bold prediction, my bold prediction will be Boston in the finals. Against the Clippers, it's not that really. It's not that really. Uh, it's not like a far-fetched thing. But I think it's going to be Boston against the Clippers. But I want the Sixers to win. Everybody know that.
0: I mean, I want the Sixers to
3: win too. But I, I mean, I don't know. You know, you know, it's going to happen, <laughs> John, I, I have, John. I have a question. Y'all you. know, and you you may not be Stop. able to answer it, and it's fine if you can't if you can't answer it. From my perspective as a fan and, and someone who kind of have a I – don't, I don't understand the game at the level, obviously, as those who played at the highest level. But to me, I listened to Jimmy Butler's interview he did on J.J. Reddick's podcast about the issue with the Sixers. That he didn't know who was in charge. I think that Brett Brown is really a big part of the problem. I don't think he holds the players accountable enough. There's no reason why Embiid, as good as he is, should be coming back out of shape and feel comfortable doing that. And there's no reason why he should say publicly to the media that I want Ben to take a, a three-pointer game, one three-pointer game, and Ben says, I'm not doing that.
0: Go ahead. Go ahead.
3: You finish. So I guess my question is, do you think, and, and like I say, it may, it, may, it may not be in your best interest to answer the question. That's fine if you don't want to, um, that that the Sixers need a new coach. And if they do, what kind of coach do you think they need that can get the best out of them?
0: What exactly did uh... – Jimmy Butler, say. So Jimmy Butler
3: said, "Jimmy Butler said when he played with the Sixers, he never knew who was in charge. <laughs> players kind of did what they wanted. You know, it didn't feel like Brett was in charge. He didn't know who was in charge."
0: Um, I feel like um, I was never, I was never a player that needed um, a whole bunch of direction. I feel like players. Um should be accountable to themselves because you know we're all getting paid a whole lot of money to play basketball, and I feel like um I feel like it's up to the players I feel like coaches can't they can't make you shoot a shot that you're not willing to take um, they can't make you come in shape um if you're not willing to put the work in. Um, all they can do is put you in the best positions to allow you to do that, but it's still up to the players to ultimately perform. Um, nobody cared that, I, you know, I had all those different coaches. Like, they just wanted me to perform. Um, I had to overcome all that. So I don't know um, about the issues and sister locker room, Um, What I hear about Brett Brown is he's a great person. And I feel like I prefer – I would prefer a good person than as a coach than a good coach and a bad person. So I've I've had that. I've had some just bad coaches as just them being bad as just people. Um, And I I feel like – I feel like a a coach that's a good person, I feel like your team will feed off of that and they will want to perform just for that coach because they respect him as a person. Um, Some of the greatest, some of the good coaches, um, uh, a lot of good coaches bounce around a lot, even though they're good coaches because players just can't take them after a while. So that organization just need a new look just because players can't take them. Um, And that's the real thing. So I don't know. I I don't know. I'm not – I have um,
1: a comment on what Jimmy Butler really said about who's in charge over there. Everyone, one statement. Who's going to win the championship this year? Just one team. No explanation. One question. So we're going to ask – Guys, Calvin, John, Evans, then Dion. Just make this team name, and that's it. We're not <laughs> Clippers. Clippers. All right, John. All right, Evan. Celtics. Dion.
2: The Los Angeles Clippers.
1: And for myself, I don't care. Because the Knicks are out of it.
2: <laughs> Don't worry, Phil. We, we got it next year. Don't worry. Don't
1: worry. I've been saying that for 43 years. So let's transition. So a statement was made by Drew Brees about how he felt about a question was asked him. And then he made a statement how he felt about kneeling. But he took it to a different direction. He took it, about, he took it to his, his parents and his grandparents in the military and what the flag made to him sidestepping or totally missing the true statement about kneeling. Then he backtracked his statement. And then he was educated about racism in America for those of color, mainly African-Americans. Then the president made a statement that he shouldn't stay, stated those comments. And he went right back at the president and stated, it's not about the flag. It's about racism in America. Evan, I'm going to ask you the first question. What's your thoughts about this whole situation is a occurring?
3: Well, I think what I would say is that oftentimes what happens in these conversations is deflection politics. People deflect to something else as opposed to looking at the real issue. We look at what happened with Colin Kaepernick. Um, people made it about him kneeling and moved it away and made it about the flag and moved away from it being about the issues of Black people being killed in America uh, at a disproportionate rate. Even if white people are a greater percentage uh, of those who die, black people are still overrepresented, 13% of the U.S. population, but 27% of those who die uh, uh, by police. Um, In addition to that, I think America has ultimately always tried to preserve an image of itself that is inaccurate to its actual history. You know we don't want to talk about the reality of slavery, and when we do, we try to make it nice and clean and sanitary. Uh, we don't want to talk about uh, war crimes or 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 what we've done to foreign nations in terms of when we come coming for occupation. We make it about a holy war, we make it about us being right, and we move away from what we're really doing and so um, for Drew Brees, there are a lot of white people even those who made statements who probably view the world the same way he does, but now it's a popular thing to, or it's the acceptable thing to talk about systemic racism.
1: Dion, what's your thoughts?
2: Um, My thoughts are Drew Brees meant what he said the first time, um, which for him was about a dishonor to the flag. What is so problematic to me is that this whole issue with Kaepernick and the NFL and kneeling, um, this has been going on now for approximately three years. And you cannot convince me that Drew's head is, is stuck so far beneath the sand that he did not know that the issue, and then to publicly come out and make these statements Um, without acknowledging um, the true essence, as Evan mentioned, the true essence of the issue is disingenuous at best. What is offensive to me is the people in New Orleans, the Black people in New Orleans, love, revere, and respect Drew Brees. And he's aware of that. And instead of using his platform in a way to encourage, uplift, um, he used it in a manner that it, it, it almost felt like a bullet. Like, how dare you? And so the apology that came, it only came after everyone, including some of his teammates, as well as other um, NFL players and even LeBron James came out and, and had a strong response to that. And then he made this video apology that means absolutely nothing. Because at the core, if Drew Brees really cared about the issue and really cared about the reason for the reason why that protest started and what's going on in the current climate, he would have never formed his mouth to make the statement that he made. I don't care how much tweets he sends to Donald Trump. I don't care if he hangs out in front of the Oval Office with a Black Lives Matter poster. Drew Brees showed us exactly who he was last week. He's no passes for me. Um, you know, the, the last two years watching the playoffs, watching the saints in the playoffs, I remember feeling so bad and thinking, wow, these saints were robbed, but it was God's plan because God knew that this week Drew Brees would open his and say the most ignorant um, and unjustified comments that I have heard.
1: And that's just where I am. As a lawyer, you made a nice closing statement.
4: You know, to show everybody, uh, to show not speak on, but to show and speak on how he feels and how he's understanding. You know, his his his, his backlash that he received, not because it's hurting his brand, but but more so because he he really sat and listened to what the comments was and the hurt feelings. And I believe that he can change, and his perspective could change. And I and I'm actually happy that he got challenged like this. And I'm glad he didn't he didn't uh, double down on the statement, but he changed his perspective. It seems like, which was really good for me. So now I'm just willing to see if he really, if his heart is really in that situation, his heart really with the community, his heart really understanding Black Lives, uh, Black Black Lives Matter movement, um, and understanding Colin Kaepernick. Uh, protests with the the of in a national anthem. So I'm just going to be on the sideline watching to see if he's going to change as far as what he does in his community and his voice. Um, so, but, but at the end of the day, I'm willing to give him a chance to act out this apology.
1: John, would you like to give us some insight and in how you feel? I feel
0: like, uh, I don't really care about Drew Brees at all. Um, I don't know how he can be in New Orleans all those years. Um, be around all those black people in New Orleans and make a statement like he made. So for me, if you're around those people, if you're in that community for that long and you still make a statement like that, and that's truly coming from your heart. And, and because you are forced because of backlash to make up an apology and um, now you are trying to, you know, help the cause or whatever. Like if you are going to now that you wanna try to use your platform to help, okay, help, but you show who you was. So I'm not going to, um, I'm not going to, uh, like, expect anything else but who you showed me you are. Because um, I feel like it's only because, you're only doing this because of the backlash. Um, I'm not anybody's judge or anything like that, so I don't know what's, what's if he's truly sorry or not but i i mean i don't i don't really i don't really care i mean it, it's not a like do we need drew Brees in this fight like really like it's, a, it's the fight is way bigger than drew Brees and his comments so if he want to if he if he wants to help then help i mean i would accept it if he, he if he want to go on the front lines and, and and help or donate or whatever he want to do then great but he showed where his heart is because I don't I don't see how you can make that statement when you're in that city for that long around those black people all those black people that's supporting you all these years. Um, Cause my last team I played for was New Orleans Pel- Pelicans, and that's one of the few arenas that I go to and you see black faces in the crowd. You see black workers, uh, you, you see black staff. Um, I went to a Saints game, you see black faces in the crowd. Most arenas you go to, it, the games are so expensive that you know black people are priced out. They can't even afford to come, um, not alone with their family. Uh, it's hard to get one ticket, but with your family and food and parking and all that, it's a expensive outing. And for him to, for him to be in that city all that time and see those black faces in those stands, in the stands, um, supporting him all these years, um, it's hard for me to, you know, to care about what he does now. One that, like Cal, I, I mean, I would, I will uh, accept this apology, but I'm, I, I'm not, um, like I'm not, like I said, looking to see what he, what he does next, like, cause I, I don't really care.
1: I agree. Some, sometimes your actions will prove everything, and I do believe he said what on his heart, but you know. The final judgment will be between him and God, but we have to continue to move forward and see our allies, and hopefully we get to a state where, you know, I know I find myself um, wondering and y'all heard me driving from a cop earlier to this, to this interview. I was wondering if the cop is going to pull me over. Is, is he slowing down on purpose or so we hit him behind? And I hope through this, a change will come for our children. You know, our children will have a, a a better life, and we've been asking for this for over 400 years. So, on that note, anyone have any final statement?
4: I'm more on the lines of of a Martin Luther King, far as dealing with, uh, you know, just being forgiven with with people like Drew Brees, because just like people who are incarcerated at times, of course they're not really sorry at first for what they've done. Um, a lot of times the crimes, whatever, but uh, when they get caught, sometimes you reflect on the things that you did and you and you change your heart and you have a change of heart. And I'm hopeful um, that that happened for Drew Brees. Um, we can always use everybody as an ally. Of course, like everybody said, we don't really – he won't make or break us as far as uh, us using or needing his voice, but it would be good for people just to understand that people that really respect and admire Drew Brees, that they – if they could change their mindsets because he had a come to Jesus moment or a better understanding of what's going on and how he was wrong, I'm gonna take that and receive that more than anything else. So, you know, I'm, like everybody else, I was, I was pretty much, I was very angry at the statement that he made, but I'm willing, like anybody else, um, how we should be anyway, to be forgiven and allow people to, uh, to have, a, uh, have room to change and make those necessary changes for themselves and for their families.
2: Um, I just wanted to add something to that. And, and and I think you're right. I am not a believer that a person is not subject to change or shift their perspective um, due to events. I think for me, and what just hurts me about this conversation is that I think Black people as a whole, we give so many people grace, like people can say things, people can do things. And we are always so quick to say, you know what, you didn't mean that. And on the same token, we get no grace in any aspects of our lives. You know what I mean? So um, just for our listeners, you know, I knew I probably came off spirited and passionate, but I'm like, we have to hold everybody to the same fire that they hold us to, right? Because I'm, I'm trying to think in reverse. Like if this situation was reversed and it was a black athlete, um, making some form of disparaging or, you know, uninformed comments about, you know, um, against the white community or against an initiative or a purpose of theirs i i doubt that people would be in a conversation saying you know what he came and apologized let's just move forward i think his actions will speak if there are actions because i'm so used to hearing these public apologies on television from you know stars people in power, et cetera. And then years go by and there has been nothing to account for the apology. Like it's almost like a publicity stunt. And so for me, I just, I just want us to hold people to the same exact standard that they hold us to. Um, and so, but Calvin, I do agree. Like I would never have the position that you know once a person displays certain characteristics they can't change but Drew as of right now he definitely can't can't get a a a pat on the back and I think what's fueling my fire even more is where he plays and the community that he was so called immersed in for so long like it is offensive to me
4: no, and I and I respect that, Deion. I just was saying, like earlier, like I was saying, people are a product of their environments. You know what I'm saying? Like um, Drew grew up in a fluent neighborhood. Dad was a lawyer. And, you know, only thing he knew was, was, was white. And only thing he knew, you know, at the end of the day, I don't care where he playing at, um, his family is his family. His core is his core. Uh, who he grew up is who he grew up. Um, sometimes those things affect us, but obviously it's telling that, for him to be immersed in that culture, and that community, and still not see it, it just tells us, you know, the face of America. You know, a lot of times we even have friends, um, like I, like like I told y'all earlier, I have I went to a pretty predominantly white school in high school, and I was shocked at my friends' view on the looting, my friends' view on uh, the protests and the flag, you know, but. They're, I had to realize their products are their environments. And now, you know, when we have this type of moment in history, we really have to have those conversations and, and let people understand really what's going on. So I think, you know, we got to ride on the momentum of the moment and give people really a chance to really kind of, you know, process what's really going on so they can make those uh, those judgments and decisions.
3: Yeah, um, I think, to I think everyone has made very valuable Valuable contributions to the conversation. Um and I think one one area we haven't really teased out a little bit as well, it's not that just that that um Drew Brees is a devout, it's not just he's an American, a white American, but he's also a devout Christian, right? And we're seeing that we're seeing that even within the faith community, there's a divide as to how People view these things right people were upset with with dr king when he would make statements you know we now celebrate him but in his own time being alive people were very upset about the issues statements he was making about race and so sure i think there are some cultural cultural divide issues it's community product of its environment all of those things but i think it it is incumbent upon us um, To make sure that we are helping people understand, like it it says a lot to me, right? It says a lot to me that he plays in a and majority African American sport. He's in a majority African American arena. That he didn't have someone to bounce these ideas off before he said them. Right? It says a lot that he never talked to Malcolm Jenkins about this before. Mm -hmm. It says a lot that he never talked to. Um, I can't remember his running back. Uh, Akuma Akum, um, his running back, or anyone else. And so there is ignorance, but I'd also contend it's willful. It's willful ignorance, or it's a choice to say stay silent instead of engaging in these conversations, these uncomfortable conversations around race, class, and and religion, all its other areas. Um, and so I think. Sure, I look forward to seeing how how Drew Brees changes over time, if he changes it at all. But the most important thing for me, I hope he learns from this situation to have individuals he can talk to, he can learn from about what it means to be Black, what it means to be a racial minority here in America.
0: I've been around a lot of athletes and I've been around celebrities and it's kind of like one of when you ask me about celebrities or athletes speaking out, um, a lot of athletes or celebrities don't know the issue fully. They don't, um, know how to articulate it correctly. And, a lot of times they are just pressured to go one way or the other and they just follow that wave. Um especially out there with that Drew Brees is nailing um, on the field. So what is it? Like <laughs> what like if, if this pitches out there like why are you nailing? Like you know what I'm saying? If if it's so disrespectful, then like so apparently if this is how you feeling when you was kneeling, you was just caving into depression. So if you was kneeling then, but now it's disrespectful, but now you're sorry. <laughs> like, like who, like, so it, it's like, it's a lot of, it's a lot of hypocrisy. It, it's a lot of, that's why I say at the end of the day, I really, if he's sorry, he's sorry. Great. I, can, I will accept that apology, but I don't care if he do anything else for the community at all. Like, I really do not care, because I do not think Drew Brees is stopping or starting this cause. We do not need Drew Brees to speak out at all for the Black community. It's not going to, like, so, so... At this, like when it comes to celebrities, I take everything with a grain of salt. You just don't know what's their reasoning for doing anything, because a lot, a lot of the times it comes down to money, it comes down to sponsorship, it comes down to media pressure. You really get um, true what, what what celebrities truly feel about about issues so when it comes to a Drew breeze, like it is what it is so whatever he do next I won't be looking looking to whatever he do next because I just like I said before I just don't it really don't matter to me.
1: on that note we want to thank John Salmon's taking out time on his busy schedule to hang out with us and being a co-host <laughs> at this time, and not only interview guests, but co-hosts. We want to thank you and um, we want all the best to you and your family. And as we spoke, you and I named our daughter's um, same name, Soraya, with the same spelling. <laughs> so we want to thank you so much. You're always welcome to, to come on anytime you want and um, to hang out with us. And um, we thank you for this time. And all everyone else, thank you for listening to another episode of A Lady and Some Dudes. All the best to you and your family. And as we continue to march forward, just remember that we're all in this together. Stay safe, God bless, and everyone have a great one.